The following program may contain explicit language. It's Friday, June 26th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Disney rethinking rather than retrenching. And therefore, we can all say... Zippity-doo-dah, indeed. Disney has announced its re-theming Splash Mountain away from Song of the South. The 1946 Disney film of stories of Uncle Remus, Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Bear was actually boycotted by the NAACP back in 1946, but still Disney thought it would be the perfect fit for its flume rides when they introduced them in their theme parks in 1989. Yeah, by the way, 1946, here's what the NAACP said. President Walter White broke bad with the myth of Disney family friendliness and wrote that Song of the South, quote, helps to perpetuate a dangerously glorified picture of slavery and, quote, gives the impression of an idyllic master-slave relationship, which is a distortion of the facts. The film was protested by black people at the time. They held signs that said, I fought for Uncle Sam, not Uncle Tom. We want films on democracy, not slavery. And don't prejudice children's minds with films like this. But they did. In story, song, film, and flume. A year ago, I took my kids to Disney and we went to Splash Mountain. It was like a trip into a yesteryear that they never contemplated the existence of. What is this? They were saying, why have those alligators formed a jug band? What is this story of a trickster yokel rabbit? And how do I possibly relate? In fact, how do I situate this at all? It was so fundamentally remote from any period or any theme that they could even access, even uh, can any connection to in their brains. It was as if there were a major attraction in Disney World about the gay 90s, or let's base a flume ride on the antics of jazz-era collegians. Over there, all the raccoon coats. And look, look, kids, sis boom It's a bunch of animatronic beagles trying to stuff themselves in a telephone booth. But dad, dad, if it's 1925, there must be, yes, there is. It's a flagpole sitter. Song of the South, Critter Country, Splash Mountain. It was more odd than anything else. It was just strange to be surrounded by Br'er Rabbit as a narrative device for a featured Disney attraction. This was not a backwater. This is a main ride. You know, at the time that they built Splash Mountain, the two Splash Mountains in Disney World and Disneyland, the price tag for those rides were as much as for the original parks, even when adjusted for inflation. Now, I learned these facts from a YouTube video channel named Second Star, which tells you the history of the rides at Disney. The video was made over two years ago. It was presumably to be as unpolitical as can be, just a Disney enthusiast who wanted to tell you about the rides. Still, he had to acknowledge that Song of the South was horribly retrograde, and the video ended with this question to viewers. My community question for this video is, if Splash Mountain was to be rethemed, which Disney movie should take over? Now don't just say Princess and the Frog, because that's too easy. Cut two. And finally, it's official. Disney is set to overhaul Splash Mountain at its parks and rebrand it for the Princess and the Frog. So you could say, oh, that's not using too much of the Imagineer there, Disney, are ya? 
But the better point is, I think, it's not that difficult, folks. Some of it is, but some of this, really not that hard. On the show today, it's an Antan twig, which is a period of rest, reflection, and sometimes recrimination. But first, part two of our interview with Matthew Barge. Barge is a police and civil rights expert who served as the federal court-appointed monitor enforcing a consent decree involving the police department in Cleveland. He's also monitored Chicago, Riverside, and he worked extensively on stop-and-frisk policy. He is back today to discuss how we reform the police if we don't even know what the police really are doing. Matthew Barge is a senior consultant with the Policing Project at the NYU School of Law and has been a federal monitor overseeing departments under review. Today, I wanted to talk to him about statistics. Scandalously, statistics, accurate statistics, are not being kept in this vital area, policing. Now, you do have news organizations like The Guardian and The Washington Post or Mapping Police Violence assembling their own stats But they have to do that because our police departments just won't. So I started by asking Barge, what kind of change might happen if there were accurate stats being kept? Let's talk stats because uh, a sub-scandal of this uh, roiling challenge is just the unconscionable truth that there are no stats being accurately kept in this area. It's, It's just voluntary reporting. And so you had to have... Organizations like The Guardian and The Washington Post and Mapping Police Violence assemble these stats because our actually extremely well-funded police departments won't. How important or what kind of change might happen if there were accurate stats being kept? Yeah, I really appreciate the question because I think this is one of the most underreported and underappreciated elements of, of, of police reform. I, I, you know, when, it, when it comes to data about what police do, there is very little, right? I mean, the the Obama administration launched um, a police data initiative, you know, with the premise of providing open data to increase transparency and build community trust. They got 21 cities to participate at first, and I think the number has risen, then, you know, there's a spinoff with a foundation support that's continued the work going after the Obama administration. But it's just about 130 of the 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the country. And they kind of get to decide what data they're going to make public. Um, and it's stuff like, you know, use of force and complaints and, and, and this and that. But it's, it's an entirely different format. Police data is self-reported. So if police don't log what happened, like providing data to somebody else isn't going to matter. Right. I mean, this a lot. This is fundamentally self-reported data. And any time that you have self-reported data, it's the people who you're wanting to know, uh, you know, what they do that are giving you the information about what they do. And there's a problem there. It's messy. Like they're often logged in very disparate uh, homegrown government database systems that don't talk to each other. Mm-hmm. You know, in Seattle before reform, I think there were more than a hundred and some disparate computer systems that told you really important things about what police officers were doing, what laws they were enforcing, who they were interacting with. None of them talked to each other, so you couldn't stitch anything together. There's not even accurate data in most police departments about what officers do all day. In many police departments, they continue to use physical log books where they record by hand 
you know, how they've spent their time on their shift. You know, so they've gone to get gas in a patrol car, walked around a neighborhood, or used force on someone. This isn't logged in any database somewhere. So if you want to understand what an officer does all day, you really can't. You, you really just can't, right? And, and in the use of force conversation, um, you know, uh, even amongst those places, which are few, that report their, their, their data on force, there is, number one, right, like a lack of uniform definition about what constitutes a use of force. Some jurisdictions, you know, define force and in, in, in what is reportable in one way, which loops in many more cases. Others, you know, it's much more, it's much more, uh, you know, the, the, the definition is much more restrictive. For example, there are relatively few jurisdictions in which pointing a firearm at an individual is reportable force, where an officer has to log that. Hmm. Even though the courts have generally said that, yeah, this is a Fourth Amendment seizure because someone pointed a gun at you, you would believe that you are under those circumstances not free to leave. So even if they do nothing else, the fact that they pointed a gun at an individual is reportable. That makes sense to me. It makes sense to the courts. Very few jurisdictions out of the box that are, 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 are requiring that officers log that. But there are a few jurisdictions often that have gone through federal consent decrees where that is going to be logged. So you have a problem just on that one very narrow issue where something that really is force should be reported. It's not by most jurisdictions. But then if you're trying to compare jurisdictions you know, uh, with one another, you're going to get uh, differences de- depending on whether they define that and many other things actually as force. Um, you know, and, and related to that, uh, there was a, an op-ed by, I think, Mara Gay in the New York Times last week, um, you know, that was recounting how the New York City Health Commissioner uh, did kind of an independent look into how many people were killed by police, um, uh, I think, you know, in, in the earlier part of, of the 2010s. And she found that the NYPD, you know, had reported, I, th- I think it was like 46 uh, folks um, who, who had been uh, killed at the hand of police. But the New York City Health Commissioner found more than double that. And the reason was NYPD was not counting uh, uh, bystanders who were hit by bullets, pedestrians Mm -hmm. who were killed by police vehicles. They simply weren't included in the tally. And so, and, and notably, when you look at statistics in that way, the incidence of death was five times higher for blacks than whites. When you looked at this expanded definition, the disparity and the racial um, effects that you found um, within what the NYPD doing was even more profound. In your own experience, you go inside the departments and you get access to some version of the real numbers. Do they match up with what these uh, media-produced databases report? That's a good question. I, I I think that especially in large cities, the numbers probably align. Large cities get a lot more scrutiny in this area. More people live there. There's more institutional support organizations like the NAACP, ACLU, et cetera. Yeah. And you know? also let's talk and also talk about local media because most of these databases just go by what's reported. And if a local newspaper has been gutted and there's maybe one TV station, things are not going to get reported. Well, no, exactly. And so you have a you have a greater chance in sort of major urban metropolitan areas of 
of having, um, you know, reports kind of filter into something like the Washington Post database. But I mean, just to take you a step back, I, 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 this is implicit in, I think, a lot of discussions about this, but how ludicrous is it that we have to rely on an independent project by the Washington Post to understand how many people are killed by American law enforcement officers? I mean, like, really, how ludicrous is that? Killing someone is obviously, you know, the preservation of one's life at the hands of a government official is a core constitutional protection. So why is it that to understand how many times government officials have taken lives as those lives have been otherwise about their day-to-day business, that that the only way we can have some estimate of that is through a newspaper, through a set of reporters, that's just completely ludicrous. Um, and I think it's also ludicrous because, you know, as you point out, the, 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 the smaller jurisdictions, and really by smaller, I mean outside of major metropolitan areas. Nobody had heard of Ferguson, Missouri, I think outside of Missouri. Maybe that's a gross overstatement. I certainly had at least before, before what happened in 2014 and 2015, right? Yeah. Um, and th- th- a lot of people live there, but they're a slightly smaller jurisdiction, 80,000, 100,000, 150,000 people. Those are places that have larger police departments. They get a lot less scrutiny and they tend to have, to your point, a lot less in the way of local media that's going to report on these things in a prominent way that people can know about. And I, I, I fear that, um, you know, that, 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 that um, what police departments do there go significantly um, under scrutinized. Um, I think you know, one other thing just to bring to the mix here um, is that there's a lot of appropriate focus right now on police use of force and the use of deadly force. Um, and that's, I think, incredibly overdue and incredibly important and incredibly necessary that we address as a country. Um, but it isn't just deadly force and it isn't just use of force that does violence to communities. It's the accumulated, aggregated scope of police presence, of police intrusion, of violence over time that compounds the violence, that compounds systemic racism in law enforcement. Even to the extent that, that there are organizations that are trying to understand and, and, and gather data about deadly force, there are countless interactions on a day-to-day basis where police are stopping or searching and arresting people that is even more of the Wild West in terms of, of, of reporting. I mean, in Baltimore, where I'm doing work, the DOJ's investigation found that in, um, I think, in, in 2014, officers recorded 124,000 stops. But the department's own internal audit showed that officers were only recording stops in 30% of cases. So if you do the math, that meant that in in the year 2014 alone, there were 412,000 stops in a city of 620,000 people, by the way. Um, But but the police department was under-reporting by its own audit you have 70% of the stops that it was making. There, were, there, were, there should have been more detailed records. There should have been data that people could look at for many more stops than were being reported. And, you know, those are the types of interactions that are substantially impactful, I think, and in my experience, um, to um, people on their in their everyday lives and to into black neighborhoods across the country and so I, I think you know sorry for the long answer but I just you know I, for as much as we are devoting appropriately attention and resources to understanding the extent of 
use of force, police use of force, police violence, and who it impacts, um, we can't lose sight of the fact that there are many other law enforcement interactions where um, folks maybe aren't getting injured and are fortunately not getting killed, but they are just as detrimental. They're just as harmful. They do just as much violence to communities in the aggregate as as a use of force. So, Matthew, here's my last question. You've been doing this for quite a while. Do you feel at present that we're closer to a solution or closer to a breaking point? It's a great question. I, you know, I have fundamentally been involved for my career in trying to implement kind of pragmatic reforms that, as I said, you could implement today to try to make the world better tomorrow. You know, to, again, to, to do things today, to change the system that we have, to try to ensure that fewer people die at the hands of police tomorrow, um, that the community is able to trust law enforcement more tomorrow. I've had a lot of, to be completely honest, I've been doing a lot of soul searching over the past three or four weeks because you, uh, we haven't, in those processes, I think probably moved the needle as quickly or as comprehensively as we have to, as, as, as the moment demands that we do. And so I, I've been telling people that I think we can work on two tracks, and I think we have to. We can try to implement immediately the things that we should have implemented you know, that the President Obama's task force on policing told us five years ago we needed to implement. We, we can do those things today. But I, I, we have to have a more comprehensive conversation about how to transform the system, um, how we can try to transform our system of uh, public safety and community well-being into something that does not assume that every last problem that um, that, that a person has demands or requires an armed police officer to respond. I mean, I, I, there, are, and there are a bunch of complicated reasons why our system has, um, I think, has, has perpetuated even in places where people have wanted to have dramatic reform. And, and I think we need to talk about that, but I think it's all things that we can address. I mean, it's just really banal, but it's important to think about. Part of why the police are asked to do a lot of um, things that are maybe outside of traditional, you know, quote unquote law enforcement, like, you know, responding to a noise complaint or responding to an individual who isn't a threat, but is experiencing signs that they're in a behavioral health or mental health crisis. Part of the reason the police respond it's because they're literally there. They work 24-7. If you call 911, you can get a hold of them. And because we've underinvested in other social services um, in, in, in most parts of our country, there isn't necessarily a mental health practitioner that can be dispatched at 3.30 in the morning on a Tuesday in every city. Um, but we can transform that. I think we can change that. So I, I think, you know, drilling down to the level of what... Uh, we can do differently to reimagine public safety is an important part of this conversation. So I, I, th I think we can change public safety. I don't think that we can change public safety if we simply go on without thinking, um, trying to nibble around the edges, you know, of policing without 
trying to have a conversation about how we can fundamentally transform it. I, I just I think the time to play small ball or to think that you know incremental changes is going to solve dramatically the the situation just is it's not the case. If you go back to what you know the blue ribbon commissions were saying in the 1960s uh, after you know urban uprisings at the, uh, you know in, in the context of police violence then if you go back to the blue ribbon commissions in Los Angeles where i live you know after the Rodney King uh, incident they were all kind of saying the same things that people are saying today and if we haven't been able to implement those reforms in 60 years maybe we need to change the system in a more comprehensive and dramatic way Matthew Barge is a police practices and civil rights expert. He's with 21CP, which is 21st Century Policing, and he's also a senior consultant with the Policing Project at NYU School of Law. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. And now the spiel. It is an Antantwig, our name for a recurring segment wherein we answer mail, issue corrections, right wrongs, and topple statues to the old, inaccurate shibboleths of the past. The first statue I'd like to topple is the number 0.108. I was discussing the blood alcohol level recorded by the police who stopped Rayshard Brooks in a Wendy's parking lot in Atlanta. The legal limit is 0.08. Mr. Brooks did not blow a 1.08. As I said on the show, he blew a 0.108. I think it's impossible to have 1% of your blood be alcohol. I misstated that fact. I apologize. Now to another example of tongue-brain mismatch the famed lingual cerebral disconnect. But in this case, it wasn't just me misstating a number once. I actually convinced myself of the wrong number. There are over 120,000 people in the United States who have died of coronavirus. There are not yet mm, 200,000. I said it incorrectly and not just once. And I didn't just cite it incorrectly once or twice. I put that number in my own brain and I used it to compare to death tolls in various wars. And it was all just inaccurate. I was saying 200,000, maybe the 2 and 120 anchored me. No excuses. Maybe I perform 66% inflation and I have that malady. I just got it wrong. I don't know. Maybe I round up in a way no one else does, a way not recognized by the authorities. I don't know. I do know I was groggy. I was befuddled. In my befuddled state, who knows? I might have even said there are 199,997 more corona deaths than there are days of the condor. I could have said that. I don't know. They could have gone that bad, right? I could have said that the number who've tragically died of coronavirus was 40 times as many people as the number of miles referenced in a famous song by the Proclaimers. You'd have done the math and you'd have said, Mike, you're wrong because you're saying it's 200,000. That's what I'm saying now. It's 120,000. Actually, it's closer to 130,000 as I speak to you today than it is 120,000, but not closer to 200,000. Okay, I admit that mistake was a bad one. I'm embarrassed. Allow me then, if you will, if you're still with me, I understand not wanting to listen again, but allow me to revel in a stance that I thought I got right, but it was, it was more right than I even knew. But let's revisit. About mm, two months ago, some of the chatter among those who chatter about media matters was that the networks should not be airing Trump's coronavirus task force briefings. But it's news, said one side of the argument. No, it's propaganda, said another. It's lies, and we don't air lies. But we do air lies. Okay, but maybe we shouldn't air lies. We shouldn't knowingly air lies. If the lies are scheduled at a specific time every night, let's do what we can not to air them. So, 
CNN, MSNBC. They vowed to monitor these coronavirus press conference and dump out if they got irrelevant. And many times they did. Me, personally, I could take it. I watch on Fox or CNN. But MSNBC, CNN performing some exercise in sanitation. It was before we realized the virus couldn't live that long on surfaces. Chief among the Well I Never Brigade was radio station KUOW in Seattle. They said, we shan't be airing these sordid exercises. And chief among the critics was NYU journalism professor Jay Rosen, who wrote up a manifesto in which he imagined some ethical version of the press adhering to standards. Let me read you part of that manifesto. We will not cover live any speech, rally, or press conference involving the president. The risk of passing along bad information is too great, and we won't be attending briefings. We can watch them on TV. So I argued at the time that the press conferences were useful. Did they have lies in them? Yes, because President Trump was there. But you know what? They allowed for some degree of accountability. And if anything, they exposed Trump as overmatched and flailing. Well, I have to say, I did think I was right. I didn't see much to show I was wrong. But seeing how it all played out, I couldn't have realized how right I was, how wrong Rosen and that side of the argument was, because the public was paying a lot of attention to those press conferences. And the public, in paying attention, was concluding correctly that Trump was leading them poorly. Amazing. The public came to a rational conclusion without us trying to put our thumb on the scale. The public also concluded, and luckily they stuck by this conclusion, but they concluded that the coronavirus really was a real threat. And then Trump canceled the briefings because they weren't helping him in the ratings. And in a way, Rosen's wish came true. No one would have to cover these briefings anymore because there weren't any. And after that, things got horribly worse. And it was all because Trump couldn't star in a TV show. So he stopped caring. He didn't meet with Dr. Fauci for weeks. He issued poor guidance. And he didn't, if you notice, ratchet down the inaccuracies, but he did scrap the mechanism wherein we in the media could apply some version of accountability to those inaccuracies. Those stupid press conferences, had they continued, probably would have saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives. Just because they would have focused Trump, maybe focused the nation, maybe hem Trump in from being his worst Trump. But Trump decided that the only way Trump was going to give attention to the problem was to do it on TV because he thinks if we're not paying attention to him, then damn it, he's not going to pay attention to it. Today, Mike Pence reconvened a version of the old task force. It did not go well. We stand here today, all 50 states and territories across this country are, are opening up safely and responsibly. We slowed the spread. We flattened the curve. We saved lives. Untrue. But I'm glad there is some semblance of a structure in place to address these issues and for the public to evaluate the job being done. So please, more task force, more televised task force, more Trump heading the televised task force, and less professorial superciliousness on issues of life and death. And now the lobster of the Antan twig. Sometimes you hear something or you say something your whole life and you never realize that's not the way to say it. Dower, door, that's always been one. And recently we collectively as a country realized Kiev, nope, it's Kiev. Who knew? I guess all the people in Kiev. So a few episodes back, 
I talked about a terrible case in New York City history of police violence, and the victim was Amadou Diallo. Do you remember the name Amadou Diallo? Shockwaves are still being felt in New York City tonight following the acquittals in the controversial controversial Amadou Diallo. Amadou Diallo. Amadou Diallo. Amadou Diallo. Well, a listener named Adam Horowitz wrote to me and said, I wanted to let you know that Amadou Diallo's name should be pronounced Jalo with an emphasis on the first syllable. You mentioned the street named after him on Tuesday's episode. I'm pretty sure of this, having met many people by that name while serving as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Gambia and Senegal, the latter of which is where I've been riding out the pandemic with my wife and 21-month-old son at my in-laws. Well, Amadou Jalo, when he was killed and when we said his name, correcting issues of mispronunciation weren't so prominent. So I guess no one ever thought or cared to get the correct pronunciation. And to me, this isn't a small thing in this specific case because the only reason that we even know his name is because he's not alive to have simply said, actually, it's Jalo. He only became famous horribly posthumously. And we put up in New York, there are streets named after him and murals painted for him. But we haven't even correctly said his name. We owe him that. These days, with all these protests, one of the most common things to chant is say his name. And we do. We say George Floyd or Eric Garner. And if we say Amadou Diallo, I think it should be noted that we should be saying Amadou Jallo. The word that kept coming up to me when I thought about this is poignant, that of everything that was robbed of this poor guy, we've also, even the well-intentioned among us, we've still been robbing him of his actual name. So thank you, Adam Horowitz. You, sir, are the lobstar of the Antan Twig. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the just associate producer. She called on Disneyland to next reconsider their country bear jamboree pavilion. Why was a jamboree with the country bears? How about country bear reggaeton or country bear yacht rock? Daniel Schrader, just producer, notes that working conditions prevalent in the 18th century hat-making industry included long-term exposure to mercurous nitrate, which would lead to erethism or mad hatter's disease. Now, this could all be used to inform a retooled mad hatter's teacup ride, make it feel to the park visitor what it actually felt like to someone experiencing mad hatter. Sure, keep the thrilling spins, but add a period of irritability, low confidence, and memory loss to best reflect medical reality. The gist, I always put the story first. The news greats agree. Ernest Goes to Splash Mountain is a special television report. And now, reporting from Splash Mountain News Central, is veteran news anchor, Ralph Story. And now you know the rest of the story. Oomperu depperu dooperu, and thanks for listening.